gotten as far as we think we finished uh, Philippians 2 to verse 11. And just to briefly recap the book of Philippians, um, we read that he doesn't uh, start with his apostleship or it's it's not an authoritative correction book. It's just a, a pastor writing encouragement to the body of believers there. They're going through a difficult time. Um, obviously, the church age isn't that far into it during the time that Paul wrote this. And however, God always gives us what we need. And uh, he was faithful to them. And as Paul was there ministering originally and suffered persecution, it prepared them to see it. Now Paul is in persecution. He's in jail as he wrote this letter to the Philippian church that now is also going through difficulty. And he says the words, do you remember what I said was in all four chapters? If you think about it, you might remember. Okay, remember and think are in all four chapters. So I think, no, I remember. So so he wants, there's something there about repetition, which is kind of nice that we're getting a lot of repetition just recently just coming here. Um, a lot of the pastors are teaching things, and the, the, the gist of it, I'll just go ahead and name it right now, is going to be talking about salvation most of the time um, for this. But remember and think is in all four chapters, and 19 times in some form he mentions joy. So why would he mention joy that often? Because he's just looking at them bubbling, and he's, oh, wow, you guys are so joyful. There's, there's, sometimes he tells us things. He doesn't tell you not to be afraid if you're not afraid. So there is the ability, again, it's, it's encouragement, not correction. They're going through difficulty, and they can be going through it with joy. And that's, the, I believe, the point that God is trying to get through us through this book, is no matter what you're going through, if you go through it properly, what that means, if, if you're saved through this, that there can be joy involved in it. So with that in mind as a backdrop, again, I think that's the theme of this book. So I don't want to ever be teaching a portion of it. This is a portion, I believe, that's doctrinal. So most of this is just encouragement. But as we get into the doctrine, keep that in the back of it, because, again, I mentioned we're going to be talking about salvation. Has anybody ever in here tried to do a thorough, full, complete study of salvation through the Bible? How, how many years would you need? <laughs> the whole book is of salvation. So hopefully, in view of the topic that Paul might be teaching these people through this situation is how we're going to view salvation. And again, so we got through verse 11. Verse 12 starts out, therefore. So immediately we're going to go back. So if you just, we'll start and read just through uh, verse 5 to 11. He says, let this mind, again, mind, thought, thinking, remembering, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you wanted to go into 
just that farther, you can listen to this morning's study, Jesus became a man. He came down from heaven. So he says, therefore, we're about to get into verse 12. Therefore, think like Jesus, even though he was omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He, he knows everything. He can't learn. Even though he was God, he took on flesh, and he became like us. And he took our shame, and he took our punishment that we deserve, which God the Father saw and approved of it. And because of that, Jesus deserves our worship. Therefore, because of that truth, we'll just read through our, our passage for today, through 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So we can see in verse 12, therefore my beloved, so again, he's calling them beloved. These are people that he is endeared to. He loves them. He cares for them. He sees them going through a difficult time. And he wants them to be able to go through it with joy. As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Then he goes on, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to be saved? Has anyone ever asked you that? I've been asked that a couple times. Once recently, and you've got to stop and think. Because is salvation simple? Yes. Is it provided? Yes. Do you have any part in it? Well, we'll read about that tonight. <laughs> Maybe. Kind of. Did you do anything in order to get out of the pit of hell? No. He did everything. But you're called to work something out. What are you called to work out? And, and the key here is we're going to find out, I believe, is that he's talking to people that are saved already. So are you saved? Are you being saved? Are you hoping for salvation, or is it already done? If, 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 salva- if everything that's going to happen is done, then why are we here? As the one pastor said, right? I mean, obviously other people need us here, but if, if, if we're going to be talking about baptism at the end. But if baptism, if getting saved is all, and I'll give you a little teaser, is baptism required for salvation? I can answer that either way, I guess. It all depends what you mean. You don't need to go underwater. But what does baptism represent? That's required for salvation. So if you need to be baptized, why doesn't he just hold you under the water and keep you there? You go home. <laughs> you might as well get it over with. Right? There's more work. Right? We know we're not done. All you got to do is pay attention and listen to your own heart, listen to your own brain, listen to what you think. Try to close your... Pray at night and try to repent of all the things that you did or said wrong that day, and you know you're not done. There's a work being done. We'd, we'd still need a Savior. Right? If you're not saved, what do you need? You need Jesus. So then you need to be, what, saved from the penalty. If you are saved, then you need more Jesus, or you need to let Jesus have more of you. 
So for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So as we, we look at that, work out. Work out is a verb. It, it's a, it, it's an, something that in the Greek it says it's ha- occurring in actual time. So it's a present tense. It means to perform, accomplish, or achieve. Well, that's something that we do. Work out, perform, accomplish, or achieve your, which is a third person plural pronoun, which means that it refers to something that's common and available to everybody. Right? So you work out your common salvation, which is a noun and it's singular. You personally are receiving and working out the salvation that was offered to everybody. Everybody gets saved the same way. There is only one means to get saved. And it's offered to everybody. That should have like many verses. Every, even Sunday school kid could come up with some verses for that. Did, God, did Jesus die for everybody? So we're going to find out this topic is, is crucial. It's important. It's simple. There are so many verses on salvation in the Bible that it's easy if you wanted to pick and choose that you can take them out of context and read a couple of them even, not just one, and get it wrong. There's many verses that we believe that there are people or cults or churches that teach a doctrine wrong. Well, this one, you can be wrong and pick multiple verses. It's just that it's going to contradict other ones, too. If you have a right understanding of salvation, you can read every verse on salvation, and it'll make sense. It won't contradict something else, like baptism now saves. You can actually read that and say, okay, now I understand what that represents. It doesn't contradict that there's only one way to get saved, and Jesus did it all. It's the same thing. So it's common. Jesus, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole, that whoever believes, anyone can get saved. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, right? I am the way, the truth. I am the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. Nobody can come to the Father but by me. There is only one salvation. It's available to everybody, and we all get it the same way. It's common. The other thing is, is as we went through this morning, who is Jesus? You get that wrong. You have the wrong Jesus. You have the wrong salvation. Who died for you? If he was just a man, then that just means I'm just a man. If he was just a God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, they become a God. And now I have to perform some of the things that he did because I'm more like him. And to me, that was the encouraging thing, especially going through the book of John. John knew Jesus as a little boy. What did he know about him? Well, he grew in his knowledge of him. And it seems like to me, as you go through the Bible, they, they, they looked at him in awe, and then he invited them into ministry, and they were able to do things that Jesus did. And then all of a sudden they stumbled, because then all of a sudden they had difficulty. And then all of a sudden he had to remove, reveal more of himself. Right? I mean, the same John that was laying with his head on his breast at the Last Supper, fell as if a dead man when he saw him in heaven. It's like, oh. (laughs) He kept on having his understanding and his awareness of who Jesus was increased, and it just caused him to worship not only correctly, but better. And we need to have that happen to us, too. So 
how you understand who Jesus is. He was God. He did take on human flesh. He gave up everything to come here. And if he wasn't God, he wouldn't be accepted from the, for the Father. He had to be God in order to be an acceptable sacrifice. Sometimes then you get the whole, well, in order for him to be sinless, his mom had to be sinless, so therefore she would, but wouldn't that mean that her mom would have to been sinless? And that, doesn't that mean somewhere all the way back you had to have somebody sinless all the time? That doesn't even make sense, right? In order for him to be God, in order for him to be accepted, he had to be God. He, he, he was a kinsman redeemer. All he needed now was to become human. All Mary had to be was human. He took on flesh. He became a human through Mary. He, his spirit, his soul was sinless because he was God. The God-man. He was the only one suitable or willing and acceptable before the Father in order to be able to do that. You have to have the right Jesus in order to have the right salvation. And almost every wrong Jesus and every wrong salvation is tied to works. And this verse probably is used in those wrong doctrines. Work out your own salvation. Well, if I don't have any part in salvation, what's he talking about? How do you work out your salvation? Well, hopefully it'll make sense. Verse 15, well, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as we read verses tonight, those words are going to come up quite often. We ought, as you become more aware of who he is, you become more in awe of him. It happened to the apostles. If, it happened to, if it's going to happen to John, it's going to happen to you. It can happen to me. All you have to do is see him for who he is. Um, then he goes on to say, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We'll come back to that. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Do you want me to repeat that one? <laughs> I don't do all things. What's all in the Greek uh, when I feel like it? Do all things without complaining and disputing. So he, puts it, he, comes, he cuts it all down to two different things. Complaining. What is complaining? I don't like X. Well, how did X come about? Which is where they're at. They're... They, I'm just trying to serve Jesus. I'm just trying to walk with him. I don't, Paul taught us, and here we are. Next thing you know, we're getting thrown in jail. Next thing you know, I'm getting persecuted. Next thing you know, I can't keep my job because of... Is Jesus okay with it? Did he allow it to happen? We, we, the whole book of Philippians, we've been reading about that. Paul said he was okay with it. We, we talked about that last time. For you, it's a sign. For you, it's good. For you, it's a reward. For you, it's... A, a sign that they saw Jesus in you. They don't like him, that's why they don't like you, as long as they don't like you because of Jesus, not because of being an idiot. So if, if, if is God in control? Is he divine? Is he sovereign? Do all things without complaining. Complaining is complaining to God. Anytime you complain, you're actually complaining. He hears it. And disputing. Those two things. Why? That you may become blameless. Wait a minute, I thought I was saved that you may become blameless. So he doesn't say you need to not complain and dispute to get saved. He says, if you want to be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you want your light to shine, if you want people to see a difference, if Jesus is going to be in you and have control of you, if you are a temple of the living God and we are the body of Christ, if what I'm saying to be true, 
what I'm saying is true is true in my life. That means Jesus has access to put me where he wants me, allow him to do to me what he wants, and that my mouth and my hands and my face are going to express him living through me. What shocks him? What surprises him? What did Jesus complain about? What is going to cause him to stumble? He's, he doesn't have full access to me, unfortunately, because of my sin, which is why we need to repent. But it doesn't say that you need to be blameless and harmless in order to be right with God to go to heaven. He says if you want to be, or I'm sorry, if you, not to complain and dispute in order to go to heaven. You just, if you do that, then you will be blameless and harmless. You want to be right in the sight of God, just think about that. Think about this tomorrow. Pick it. Let the Holy Spirit convict you. You're complaining right now. Ask him to show you. How many times do we complain a day? How many times do we dispute? Just, let's just start there. I can start there. That would keep my prayer life well busy just to try to stop complaining and disputing. It's not about being able to go to heaven or the Holy Spirit leaving me. It's about me being in tune with what he wants to do. And again, if we back up to Philippians 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints, he calls them saints, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He says, it began. Salvation is just the beginning. Some people think I'm saved. There, I did it. No, you just started. That's crossing the starting line. He's going to complete it. There's still a work. He began something, but there's still work to do on us. There's salvation continuing. He calls them saints. He started a work, and he's going to finish it. God is the one. He's continually working in you both to desire and for the results. He finishes everything. But if it's all about him, if he did it, he started it, salvation is of him, he's, he, if he's going to complete it, and if I have nothing to do with it, does that mean it's beyond my control? That I can't help it? Isn't that what Calvinism says? If you're a true Calvinist anyways, you the five, the irresistible grace, you can't stop it. God started it, he's going to complete it, you have nothing to do with it, you can't even add to it. Everything that you do is bad, but eventually he's just going to take it over. Or is it up to me to work it out? And now I have a part in salvation, and it's because of my will and my strength that I have to take what he's given me and then carry it the rest of the way and do the rest of the work. Right? And that's Arminianism. I think, I don't think, God has shown me they, they both can be true at the same time. God is sovereign, and you have a responsibility. God does everything required. He even causes us to desire. He said that there's none that seek me, no, not one. And, and if he didn't come to us, we wouldn't even know he exists. You can't imagine this and come up with it yourself. He started it. He tells you everything that you need to know. He causes you to desire to want to get saved. He gives you the power to accomplish it, but he also gives you a will where you can say no. 
you, you do have an option of rejecting him. Right? Gifts are something that he just freely gives, yet we're also called to have fruit, which grows, and that comes from abiding in him, which causes a responsibility. He wouldn't, he wouldn't encourage you and tell you to love him if you didn't have that potential to do it, which means that you could also reject him. You can decide not to. Gifts are given, fruit grows. We have the ability to receive him, but we also have the ability to reject him. We have the ability to please him, but we also have the ability to grieve him or sadden him. And we have the ability to let him fill us, but we can also quench that. We do have a responsibility. And most people, they, when they go to think of certain theologies, they, they come up with Spurgeon. And somebody once asked Spurgeon, I read online, if he could reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Big, huge debate. Many centuries, many brilliant minds have gone over this, to which he answered, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. They're not opposed to one another. They, they work hand in hand. If he didn't start it, I wouldn't even know about it. If he didn't empower me, I couldn't do it. But I still have a choice. I still have a will. I, either, I can let him do it or I can, I can fight him. And uh, I think I mentioned that maybe the second week of, in Philippians. It, I, you can't change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but he won't change your mind. And that's where I think the sovereignty and the responsibility meet. You can change your mind and just believe. And then God will. Or you cannot believe, and then God won't. He wouldn't command us to repent if we weren't able to repent. And there's a book Pastor um, Dave had written, um, Dave Hunt, about what love is this, about if you didn't have, if he forced you, then you wouldn't have the ability to love. God, every, the commandments are all fulfilled in, in, in love. Love God, love your neighbor. He, he commands us to love. We have the ability to do it. Yet isn't love a fruit of the Spirit? So it's not even ours. He's, he gives you what you need. He tells you to do it. And then when you do it, he calls it yours. And he, and he commends people for the love they have one for another. Yet the love that they have one for another isn't their own love. They've been given it. It's, the, it's his power, yet we're still called to walk in it. And the word repent is metanoa, which means to change your mind. To think properly. It doesn't, he doesn't say suck it up, try harder, you know, grind your nose. He just says, just think properly. Understand who I am. Get your doctrine right, and then let me do it. Right? And we can uh, read about that. Mark 1, verse 14 to 15. I'll just read it. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You are not believing the gospel. You need to repent and believe the gospel. They had the ability to not believe. That's why he says, no, now you need to believe. You should be believing this. Repent. Change your mind. Metanoah. John 6, 28 to 29. They said to him, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. That's the work. If you do the proper work and you repent and you get your mind right, you'll grasp this and it'll make sense. Another common uh, verse on salvation is Ephesians 2. 
in verse 8. It said, For by grace you have been saved. So again, we're talking about this salvation. For by grace you have been, past tense, saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've been saved apart from works. Salvation is a gift we receive by faith. We're his workmanship. So we're something that he's making, right? The poema, where he's writing a poem. You are the thing that God is, is creating. And he doesn't force beliefs on anyone, but he says that we should walk in them. It's the right thing to do. We should worship him because he's worthy. He alone is God. There is no other. We are invited to walk with him because of what he did. In, uh, back in Philippians, it says that we were created, uh, it says for his good pleasure. Right? You were created for God's good pleasure. So what's your calling in life? To please God. Right? Well, first of all, how do you please God? You worship him. In, in order to worship him, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Right? Did God, it's not like God was up in heaven alone before creation thinking, I just wish I had things down there that wouldn't sin. There was no down there. He didn't create you not to sin. Because some people say, I'm good. I, you know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to quit this. I'm trying to quit that. Well, it's not like God was lacking goodness and he created you because he needed more goodness. He just wanted to spend time with you. But our sin takes us away from him. He doesn't like sin because it takes you away from him. What pleases him is when you walk by faith. You just believe him. Faith, it takes faith to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not things. Faith is the works of what you believe. You can tell me that, you know, I have faith that that car is going to go down the road and not do anything, but if you really believed it, then you'd get in it and do it. If you really have faith, and if you really believe that that will work, faith is what you do that reveals what you believe. That's why the whole Hebrews 11 is all about actions. It's about what people did, but it's only the evidence of showing you what was inside of their heart to begin with. Faith is the works. We were created for faith, right? We talked about that right? from Habakkuk into here, into Philippians. These people are going through something. How they live will tell you what they believe. So do they believe God's pleased with them? Do they, do they believe everything was going to be better once they got saved? Do you believe that? I'm a Christian now. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. Jesus saved me, so now I don't have to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. So now life's all fun and games, and it doesn't matter, and I can have as much money as I want. All i got to do is ask him for everything. Now life's just a big... If I, if I think that, when it doesn't go that way, I will not have what? Joy. Right? The prosperity doctrine is dangerous because it's teaching people something that's wrong, their faith is in something that's wrong, and now you can't please God, and now you're complaining and disputing. Which is evident that you're, you didn't understand something correctly. I'm only complaining because I didn't understand. I didn't expect this. I didn't think this was supposed to happen. I don't understand God right. So therefore, I wanted something that I thought I could have, and I can't have it, so now I'm going to complain about it. I thought life was about me. I'd like to think you 
think life is all about me. Then I'll be happy and I'll have joy, but I won't because you'll fail me. I'll fail me, right? Doctrine matters and what you think matters, right? We, we had dealt with that before, too, when Brian and I were in jail. There's a, people that are saying, the Lord showed me I'm getting out. I was falsely accused, all this stuff, and he had verses of Scripture and all this stuff, and all of a sudden, he doesn't get out. And it was bad enough he didn't get out. He ended up going to Attica. And the worst part was, he actually grew up, his, his mom was a pastor of a Pentecostal church in the city, worship leader. He was active in worship, spiritual. He, he fell. He was in a bad place, and bad things happened. But he got back with the Lord, and he was claiming things that weren't true. His doctrine was wrong. And I believe the Lord gave us a scripture. We went and visited him, and I think he was going to get out. But in the meantime, he went to Attica, and he was sharing his faith. And everyone that had been coming to the study believed him. And when he got sent upstate, they were stumbled. And that was the sad part, is he was, their faith was in what they hoped for that wasn't doctrinally sound. And they lost their joy. They, you know, it happens. God wants us to walk by faith. And there is joy when you do that. It's good for us. It's healthy. And it's more pleasant. So Paul's writing to the Philippians here. They're going through difficulty. He says, God has saved you. You may not understand why you're being persecuted. What do you believe is true? He's challenging them. What is the truth? Walk by faith in what you know. And then he's, he's asking them. He's bringing up through this whole book. Where is the joy that you should have? Are you saved? You can always start there. If things start going bad, I go there a lot. I share it with my wife sometimes, and she's not very appreciative of it. <laughs> Something difficult happens. Well, you're going to heaven, right? Let's just, if, if that's settled, then it doesn't matter what happens after that. Start there. And then what do you save from? What do you save to? What really matters? Why is this happening? Don't, and Pastor Jeff used to say all the time, don't throw away what you don't know for what you, don't throw away what you do know for what you don't know. If you don't know something, that doesn't make what you do know wrong. If things don't mesh in your theology or your doctrine, then either one or both of those things are wrong. Find out, ask them, find out why. There is a truth. The Bible does not contradict himself. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the question you can ask yourself is, am I saved? Then you can ask yourself, am I saved from what? The next question is, is am I being saved? Am I being saved? So if somebody asks me, which they have, what, what do you mean saved? What does that mean? Okay, well, if you're not a believer, the answer is pretty clear. That's the salvation that most of us talk about, right? Justification. Justification is being saved from the penalty of sin, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple if you think about it. If somebody's in a boat and the boat's got a hole in it and they ask to be saved, what are they asking for? I don't want to drown. Right? If you're up on a mountain and it's freezing and your rope's broke or whatever, I, would, I, need, I need warmth. I need, I need food. What do you save from? What's, the, what's your greatest need at the moment? That's why it's so awesome, the, the burning bush, right? He goes, I am that I am. I am what you need. I am your salvation. What do you need right now? That's what I can save you from. 
What issue are you dealing with right now? That's what I can save you from. So we could, a bunch of times if we have hmm, Romans 3, we'll be reading through a bunch of stuff, a lot of in Romans. My wife tells me I read too fast, but I have a lot to read, so I'll see what I can do. Verse 19, Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There's a goal in life. Let's see if we can make everybody guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. All the law does is tell you that you're violating it and that you're guilty. That's its goal. And there's our word justified. Nobody will be justified by works or by what they do. 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this isn't new. It was written about. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Believe. For there is no difference. I remember, again, I mentioned it before, we were walking the streets on Monterey Avenue, and somebody's like, what do, okay, this salvation you guys are talking about, what do I got to do to be saved? Just believe. He's like, no, it's too easy. Give me something to do. And I have a sarcastic note. I can't say this was led of the Spirit, but I said, it's not that easy. You can't do it. Because <laughs> he wasn't doing it. On everyone who believes... Verse 22, for the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being, it's an ongoing verb, right? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Where is what I did? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So, again, what is faith? Faith is works of what you believe. What Do you believe in the gospel? If Jesus comes into you and you believe that, then you get his righteousness granted to you. And it's not only an improvement, it's necessary. It is the only thing that can get you in. We are justified. Jesus on the cross said what? It is finished. Right? We just finished Revelation. So a lot of people think, what is the penalty for sin? Some people say hell. I used to say that. I don't think it's that wrong, but it's wrong. Right? Hell is a holding place. What's the punishment for sin? Where does people in hell get sent because of their sin? The lake of fire, where it burns eternally forever and ever. He finished, so Jesus didn't go to hell after he died to pay for the sin, because he was still on the cross when he said it was all paid for. He was separated somehow, eternally, from the Father, on the cross. And when that happened, the whole world went black. The light of the world was put out. On the cross, it is finished. 
So once you get saved, we understand that we can still need Jesus. We know that once he said it is finished, I wasn't made perfect. I wasn't even born yet. I also am quite aware that at the moment I got saved, I was not perfect. I was justified, just as if I'd never sinned in God's eyes. My sin was covered, so I'm going to heaven because I'm forgiven, not because I'm perfect. However, the work is still ongoing. Flip with me, if you would, to Hebrews 10. So now we're going to be talking about an ongoing salvation. I was saved from the penalty of sin when I was justified. Sanctification is a process of being saved from the control of sin. And since you're all looking at me, you are all in the process of being sanctified. It's an ongoing thing that he does. Hebrews 10, we'll read starting in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and again, Rob was there this morning also, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, because that can't make you right before God, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God." Jesus said everything that was written was written of me, and that was when the Old Testament was the only thing that was written yet. All of those things were prophesying of what he was going to do. He was the fulfillment. They had to have faith that what that represented was going to be what he promised throughout the whole Old Testament, that he was going to send a Savior, and that Savior was going to die for them. Because there was a point in time when the people of Israel were in sin, and God told them, stop making sacrifices. Their heart was wrong. They thought what they were doing was making them right. In fact, sometimes they were stealing. It was just an, if, if having the sacrifice was the only thing they could fix them, why would he tell them to stop doing it? He's basically saying, now you have no hope. He's saying, you're doing it, thinking that it's making you okay with me, but there's no faith involved. It's actually driving you farther from me. You think that by your works, you're making yourself okay with me, but it's the th very thing that's keeping you from me. Get your understanding correct and then come back to me. Verse 8, chapter 10, verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second, but that we will have been sanctified, but that will we have been passed on, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, 
after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstools, verse 14, for by one offering he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being, that's an ongoing verb, sanctified. They, he made them perfect through justification, and now he is having those that were made perfect are in the process of being sanctified. They're ongoing. He, he made you right before God, which enabled you to even begin. And now that you're beginning, he's doing a work in you, and he is conforming you into the image of his son through sanctification. And uh, if, there's one more salvation that's mentioned in Romans 8. Starting in verse 18. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you can see there's a common theme through the Old Testament, especially through the writings of Paul. There's, there's fear and trembling. There is justification, sanctification, and we're about to read about glorification. And to deal with difficulty through trial, a lot of these we're about to read after this, we're going to go to Peter. They, they suffered a lot. The Philippians were in a, a difficult time. If Jesus himself said, or those who, those who worship me shall suffer persecution. The world hates him. That's not found often on my refrigerator, but it's a truth. And there's encouragement all through the, the, the New Testament. And... Uh, Again, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's future tense. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, especially for those in their 50s and 60s and 70s. Oh, <laughs> at least I do. <laughs> 23, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope, we are saved in hope. Hope. So there's salvation, but there's still a hope, even though you're saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. So they're saved, but there's weaknesses. But there's the Spirit. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, which is why we shouldn't complain. 
for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, so this is what you're predestined to, to be conformed to the image of his son, which happens through sanctification, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Again, once you get saved, you're justified. And if you've been justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there's coming a time for those being that were justified, that are being sanctified, that one day will be glorified. Pretty soon we're, we were saved from the penalty of sin. We're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And one day we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. That is our hope that we do not see yet. And if you're here, you do not see that. There is sin all around us. And it seems to be growing worse, at least in this country. And as an American, I could say, man, I can't believe how bad it's getting in these last days. It's been really bad in a lot of places. Israel has always been the timetable. So we like, man, as bad as it's getting here. No, actually, if you were looking at Israel, you've been expecting it to come because they are put back in the land. They have enemies all around them. The, God's timetable, according to um, Ezekiel and um, Daniel, have been being fulfilled. So we're just now feeling the, the heat from all of that. But this salvation is an ongoing thing. And uh, if you could... Turn with me, please, to First Peter. Chapter 1. Let's start in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again, born again. He has created something new in us. We're alive to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you greatly rejoice. So these people knew that they had something good coming and they were rejoicing. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That's where the Philippians are at. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, God says your money system isn't the economy of heaven. Your faith is worth way more than money, than gold. Being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, the people alive at this time, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, because that's coming, just like it said in uh, Philippians, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, 
and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as your, in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And holy just means to be separated, like to be set apart for him. 17, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges to each one's work, without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, or in the King James, being born again, being, it's a present passive participle. It's something that happens to you that's ongoing. Be being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. The word of God remains. Doctrine matters. Have a right understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and realize that he was the one that died for you. And if he was willing to die for you, what won't he do for you? His death was sufficient. You ever feel condemned? How bad do you think your sin is? If you think your sin is worse than Jesus was good, that is not right. It's bad doctrine. Jesus was really good. I don't care how bad you think you are, and we all are bad, but it has nothing compared with how good Jesus' blood was sufficient. It's almost blasphemy to say, I have to go down and suffer more in purgatory. That's saying his blood wasn't sufficient. Jesus wasn't good enough. Jesus is pretty good. <laughs> Flip to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, please. Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. This would be good for the Philippians to read, right? And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. There's a death and a life. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, the flood, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. That's why if somebody tells me, you need to be baptized or else you're not going to heaven, brother, I'll say, no, that's not true. The blood of Jesus Christ saves me. But if somebody says, you don't need to be baptized, I'll be like, well, baptism now does save. It says so right in the Bible. How does that? Because you've got to keep reading. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, it's not about the water coming over you and making you clean. It's not the fact that you went in physically and did something that proves something. It's, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Baptism now saves. So if you want to tell me you need to be get baptized, I can say, sure, I agree with you. What is baptism? Do you need to get dunked? Can you sprinkle? It's a picture. We're about to read that. You can flip to Romans 6. Baptism is a picture. You go under the water, you come out of the water. Why, why do you do that? Because when you go into the water, it represents something. If what it represents did not happen to you, then I would say you're not saved. Did you die in Christ? Where is your hope and faith? Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Have you been baptized into Christ? That doesn't happen when you go into the water. In fact, you have to be saved in order to have that mean something. You don't baptize people and then hope they get saved. You, get, you, you do baptism because it's representing physically something that happened internally. That needed to happen internally. Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should, going under the water doesn't make it happen, and even getting saved doesn't make it happen. We should walk in newness of life. You have a will. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Or you can let him have you, and you can walk with him. Verse 5, for if we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him. Knowing this, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, Death no longer has dominion over him. For the, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's this picture of death and resurrection. 
and that is the gospel, and that is how you get saved, and that is also how you are being saved. The old man has to die, and that's why the Apostle Paul said, I die daily, because it's an ongoing sanctification process. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, or in the middle of the day, or as you're laying in bed at night, and you're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I messed up. The flesh has the ability to fall far all the time. The Bible does not say that your flesh gets better. You don't become a better soulish person as a Christian. Hopefully you're walking and letting the Holy Spirit guide you more. Your flesh has all the capability of doing bad as much as it did before you got saved, as it does now. You just don't have to choose it. It doesn't say reform the old man. It says crucify him. The only response the Bible has for the flesh is to kill it. We need to be dead in Christ. Hopefully, we're sinning less, but that only means that we're repenting more. Believe. Believe more. Let him have control of you. Walk in the Spirit. And we're right near the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Does baptism save? There are cults that say you must be baptized, and not only some say that you need to be baptized, but some say you need to be baptized by their priest in their temple. They also say that you can baptize dead relatives, which we're about to, to touch on. They've died, they weren't saved. What about them? Well, we baptize you for them, even though they're dead. They get a verse right out of Corinthians. Hopefully this will make sense too. If you ever have a Mormon, a Latter-day Saint come to your door, which I've asked them before about baptism there, because they believe you need to be baptized in a, in a Mormon temple by a Mormon priest. So then you can take them to 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll just read, verse, starting at 14. Paul, I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul said, I didn't come to baptize, I came to preach the gospel. Which that shouldn't make sense to them, if they're paying attention. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 15, which is where I would take them next, the first four verses, the gospel is what saves you. Paul says you get saved by the gospel and that baptism isn't part of his gospel. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, According to the scriptures, Jesus died for you, rose from the dead, God accepted his offer, and if your faith is in that, you are granted his righteousness. Paul didn't baptize, he didn't need to. Baptism, because he would go on. Other people baptized, he didn't, wasn't opposed to it. The baptism wasn't the thing that saved. It was a representative of what happened in them. The gospel saves. The gospel is important. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. The Corinthian church was carnal, as we know. They, had, they exercised spiritual gifts. They were very out there, but they also were divided. They also argued. They also complained. They were also doing things. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection, some of them. So Paul is here talking about what salvation is, and then he's saying, if there is no resurrection, then what are you doing this all for? It's all in vain. So he is confronting a doctrine that claims that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's how, when you get to verse uh, let's see, 14 to 17 talks about that, and it says, i got to find it, about being baptized for the dead. He says it, uh, for some reason, 1512 is what I just read. And it goes on in order of resurrections. He's put all things under his feet. Verse 29, he says, well, if we start in 27, he has put all, 1527, he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when, he, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, then why are they baptized for the dead? So there's a people now that are teaching that they actually baptize for dead people, in which some other false religions did do that. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, though. If you read this in context, he's basically saying Jesus rose from the dead. So he's saying, you guys went out and got baptized in the name of Jesus. Why would you get baptized in the name of Jesus, going under the water, being dead in him, and him coming out of the water as alive if he's not alive, if he didn't come out of the water? You're being baptized in the name of a dead Jesus. What are you doing? I think he's just correcting their wrong doctrine that they misunderstood the resurrection. And I believe they totally twist this and say, no, they were baptizing for dead relatives. No, I think that dead that they're talking about here was um, Paul correcting their doctrine that Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead, which we know that he did. And uh, if you want to come up and get ready, we're about to take communion. But I just want to read in 1551. Um, I'll read this and then if you guys while she's uh, we're worshiping you can come up and get the elements uh, behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trump, trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and mortality is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we worship and come up and you, and you sing, just reflect on what Jesus has done for you, that he got the victory, that he saved you from the penalty of death. He is saving you from the control of sin and looking forward to that victory at the, at, in heaven with him.